Easter Sunday, day of the resurrection celebration that many, many churches across the world celebrate. We uh, are going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, which is the Spirit giving us many explanations of why the resurrection of Christ matters for us. I'm going to begin in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ is not raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And we are being found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that He has raised Christ. I mean, did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. For each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, that he is accepted and put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. That section is a little confusing. I'm not going to talk about it this morning, but if you have questions, I'd be glad to talk to you afterwards. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain? Humanly speaking, Fight with beasts in Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good news. Wake up from your troubled stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps a wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen it, to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For stars differ from the star and the glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. 
What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised up in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are in heaven. Of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all see, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have raised your Son up from the dead, and that he is alive together with you. And we are awaiting the day that he returns and brings us all together and dresses us with immortality. We pray that he comes to visit us. So I just read a big chunk of scripture for you. Thought in the middle, maybe I shouldn't keep going, but I thought, you know, it is the word of God after all. It does a better job than I all the time. It does a better job than I want to talk to us about a few things this morning regarding this idea, this truth, this unbelievable thing that happened 2,000 years ago, the resurrection of the Son of God. Um, it matters. It matters for our faith. It matters for our lives. It matters for the end of our lives. It matters for eternity. And it matters in the church. I often talk about you know, where we're at, how we got here, what's the history of things. So I'm going to do that this morning. I will change. The history of this doctrine, the resurrection of the Son of God, has always been understood in the church to be essential to the faith. Always. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the Son, you're not a Christian. In fact, it was part of the Apostles' Creed that we just read, the resurrection of the dead, Resurrection of the Son of God, who was raised again on the third day. Essential beliefs. 1 Corinthians 15 says that 
it's one of the absolute kernel of things. He was killed, he was buried, he was raised. And yet, over the last 130, 140 years, it has been massively different in the West, in the United States. Towards the end of the 1800s, in the United States, there was a guy who you've probably never heard of. His last name is Briggs. He preached a sermon where he called into question the resurrection. And he said, basically, the resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection is a belief meant to scare children. It has no place on Christian faith. And he said, that's absurd. That's crazy. Did anyone actually say that? Yes. This guy actually said it in like 1890. He said it's just, it's a ghost, it's a boogeyman, and it's just meant to scare people. That's weird. And it was extremely controversial. And he was a Presbyterian. Fast forward 30 years, and the controversy has continued to erupt in the Presbyterian Church. What we know of as PCUSA today. The controversy continued. And then he had this man who you may have heard of named Harry Fosler. You've heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he was the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Fosdick said, none of this stuff matters. The resurrection doesn't matter, the miracles of Jesus doesn't matter, the virgin birth doesn't matter, the inerrancy of scripture doesn't matter, none of it matters. In fact, it matters so little that we should not ask pastors if they believe in that. That was happening in the 20s and 30s at the PCUSA, at the Presbyterians, and at the National Conventions for years. Major controversy. Can we ask pastors if they believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And the answer that finally came in about 1930 was, no, we cannot ask pastors if they believe in the resurrection. We can't ask them if they believe the Bible is true and inerrant. We can't believe if they believe in the virgin birth. We can't ask them if they believe that Christ's death substituted for ours is the nature of the faith. We cannot ask them if they believe in the miracles of Jesus. We don't want to ask any pastors that because we are, after all, a big denomination. We don't want to press anybody into a small faith. And that idea is called the fundamentalist controversy. We tend to link fundamentalism with independent Baptists today, but it's actually a Presbyterian controversy a hundred years ago. And unfortunately, the liberals won. And they didn't just win in the Presbyterian church. This controversy began to spread in the 20s and affected every mainline denomination. So that is the United Methodists, PCUSA, the United Church of Christ, the Episcopalians, the Evangelical Lutherans, the American Baptists. Those six denominations made up the majority of churches in America 100 years ago. And all six of those denominations said, we're not going to ask our pastors these questions. A hundred years ago, they said, we will not require our pastors to believe the Bible. That doesn't mean every pastor in those denominations didn't believe the Bible. It just means they were not required to, to be a pastor. That happened a hundred years ago. And it caused major church splits. 
ECUSA split and became, back then, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church was the conservative side of things. United Methodism had several splits, I don't remember all their names. The American Baptists also had several splits of many different names. Evangelical Lutheran split became the Missouri Synod, was the conservative arm of that. Um, all these, all these, what? Yeah, Missouri Synod. Way to go, man. But this was happening a hundred years ago. This doctrine, the resurrection, bodily resurrection of the Son of God, was deemed so insignificant in the life of the church in America that we do not require our pastors to believe it. Paul says, if you don't believe this, Christian and you're pitiable. Why even attach yourself to the Christian name anymore? Just go live a life. He says it in several ways. So he says this. Uh, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. There's just no point. If Jesus didn't actually come back from the dead, actually, physically, bodily, it's futile. It's a worthless waste of time. It's in vain. It's pitiable. You might as well just go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and all you have is this life. Now, I say all that because I want you to think, well, I would Believe that, and then I'm going to try and show you that we've all kind of imbibed this idea. We all actually have to believe this. That it's become so enculturated that we all are susceptible to believing that this life is really all that matters. So, the main way, the main way that we have all imbibed this, we've all drunk this stuff coming down in all these denominations for a hundred years is this. The very end of chapter 15 has this poetic line. And then he, when Christ returns, the last trumpet, this thing will finally come true. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sin? Where is your victory? And then what does he say? The sting of death is sin. We tend to think that the sting of death is the pain of watching someone die, because that's painful. But the sting of death in Scripture is not the pain of seeing someone die. The sting of death is sin. And the way that we have drunk the Kool-Aid and started believing that the resurrection really doesn't matter all that much is we have a very very, very little view of sin. It's tiny. It's minuscule. And I can prove this to you in any number of ways, but an easy way I can prove this to you is to pick up any commentary, anyone you want, anything written before 1840. And within 20 pages, you'll think, boy, they should talk about sin a lot. Boy, they just seem to talk about sin all the time. 
we've done this, we've done that, and this is law, and this law, and that law, and this law. We have a diminished view of sin and its consequence. So the reason that this has happened is because over the last hundred years we've drunk this idea that the resurrection is this kind of a peripheral issue in the church. And it just doesn't really matter all that much. What does it actually improve when we die and are resurrected? This life's pretty good after all. We have money, we have things, we have joy, we have happiness, we have music, we have movies, we have interesting things to think about and talk about. We have all kinds of careers to give ourselves to. We have the industrial age is upon us. We have computers and on, on and on you could go about how great everything is. We can experience pleasure beyond pleasure in this world. And we do it at the expense of thinking that death and sin are actually real and actually matter and are something that need to be dealt with. Finally. Exclusively at the second coming of Jesus. Instead, we very much side with the people who say, eat, be merry, for tomorrow will die. So go back to the first Corinthians, right? And Paul says some very strange things about our present life. So, verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 15. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in me, which I have in Christ Jesus, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus and the dead of my legs? Paul is basically saying, if you take the Christian life seriously, it's a sacrificial life. And if there is no point at the end where your sacrifice has any sort of meaning, give yourself over to the pleasures of sin. Right? If death and sin and the curse of sin doesn't really matter all that much, then why are you giving anything up as a Christian? Why have you ever said no to yourself? There is no point to saying no the resurrection doesn't matter. Because the resurrection only matters if death is actually an enemy. And death is only our enemy if we think sin is bad enough to need death. So in order to restore what we have lost in the Christian faith in the 20th century, we have to take sin seriously so that we'll take death seriously. So that we'll know that the resurrection matters so that we stop sin. A circular view. Lots of arguments in scripture are actually circular. We're going to go back to the beginning so you can start with it. You have to know that sin is serious and requires death so that you'll believe that the resurrection matters so that you'll stop sinning because you know that sin is serious and requires death. It needs the resurrection so you'll stop sinning because sin matters. This keeps going. So this is actually how Paul phrases this in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians. 
Paul's start verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, I mean if Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. That a faith that is futile is the one that doesn't believe in the resurrection, and you're just caught in your sins. You never escape. You never get out of here. You're just always guilty of sin. Because you don't think it matters. Or, In verse 32, what do I gain? Perfectly speaking, I follow peace in Ephesus if the dead are not raised. Let us eat and drink. Tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and say this to your shame. But this is actually, unfortunately, not a new thought. I gave you the history of kind of how it happened and how we come to this point in America. But actually, this is always a problem for the church. It's a problem in Corinth. They just didn't think that A, they were going to die very soon, or B, that it mattered all that much, or C, that death was really that bad. They just kind of believed in this kind of idea. Paul says, if that is true, if that is true, you'll never stop sinning. But if you do, if you do actually believe that the death that is required at the hands of an almighty God for your sin is real, then you will do anything to escape that death. You will do anything to escape that death. And so there are two basic ways that God motivates his people live godly lives. One is through fear of God, displeasure, displeasing the Spirit, grieving the Spirit, fear of God, discipline of God. It's one way. It's constant in Scripture. Don't do this, I will discipline you if you do. Don't do this, if you keep doing it, you will not win the kingdom. The other side of motivation Church, comfort of the spirits, the resurrection. Those are the two ways that God motivates his people to live God and lives in this present age. There are many different avenues of those and subsets of those. Those are two main categories fear of God, pleasure of God. Fear of God, resurrection. We have here both mingled together, as is often. The fear of God and that death actually matters and is the reason why the resurrection matters. And the gift of God, the pleasure of God, the reward of God, in that if you believe the resurrection is true, you won't stop sinning because you know that the sin is what caused the death to begin with, and you don't want to have any part of it. You don't want to continue to contribute to the reason the Son of God died. Grace again, so that you would have life. So that you could be with him in immortality. And until the end, until he comes again, the sting of death will always be with us. The sin, the prick that caused the death of humanity is sin. And if we ignore that, 
view of the resurrection, because it really doesn't solve all that much, from a high view of this life, we will think that this life is all there is to live. And in fact, if you read later uh, men downstream, so probably the 60s and 70s, after his initial guys, Fosdick and Briggs and Schleiermacher before that, you read it 60 years downstream from these guys, they will actually audibly say their motivations for adopting this kind of theology. The diminishing of the resurrection, the miracles, the penal substitution of Christ, is so that they can sin in a way which they choose. But they're just honest. They just say, the reason I adopted this particular view is so that I might have this sin and be happy with it. And if you read the sexual revolution guys in the 60s and 70s, they'll actually say this kind of thing. We adopted this kind of atheistic mindset in the church so that we could have sexual liberation in the church. We knowingly put aside what we thought was actually true and adopted this instead so that we could do what we wanted. They're knowingly choosing to do this. Now, this isn't everybody. Some people are not that self aware of why they're choosing to believe some bad theology. But there are lots of people who absolutely feel that way. Who are very in tune with the fact they're rejecting tenets of the Christian faith. But holding on to the name Christian in order to be in the church but do what they want. They are exactly what Paul here is describing. And in fact, they were there in Corinth that he's writing to in the first century, in the first couple of decades after Christ resurrected and ascended. That what was happening in the Corinthian church was all kinds of things, one of them being sexual debauchery of a man who had his father's wife in the front pew, and everyone just kind of going, How, isn't it cool that we like don't ever say anything to this guy? And don't say that he's sinning, and don't say that he's in danger of going to hell, and that he's dragging the entire church down, and he's leavening the whole world. Isn't it great that we just never say you're wicked in a church? Isn't it great? Paul says, it's not great. It's actually really bad. You have to actually talk about sin and say it's bad. Because death is real. The resurrection matters. So that is how, that is what has happened. The reason we are reaping this stuff in the church now, the acceptance of homosexuality across every mainline denomination in the last 20 years, it's not accidental. Not happenstance. It didn't just come out of thin air. It's a direct result of the rejection of doctrines of truth like the resurrection of the Son of God. When they began to reject it a hundred years ago, there was an inevitable conclusion, which is debauchery in the church. Sung about, loved, proposed, adored on a Sunday morning. We have a man who loves another man who is married to another man proudly preening in front of his congregation and they clap along. 
That's a direct result of the fundamental astonishers and unbelievers. They don't believe in any of the truths of Scripture. So therefore they do what they want. They live, they drink, they eat, they die. Who doesn't matter? This is, unfortunately, the stuff that we have to absolutely fight against. We have to expose the demons of darkness in our midst. In our midst. Not look elsewhere and go, those terrible people all out there, us in here, we're good. We're clean. We don't sin. You do. I do. We do. We must be honest about ourselves. Because the resurrection if you're not honest about your sins, because you really don't think there's much to escape from, the sting of death must not be that bad. But if you actually believe that death is a real bad thing, that has to be escaped from, you'll do almost anything to ensure that you have escaped. And one of those things, one of those things, is to give glory to God one who is raised from the dead by action. And that he is the only way to escape death. He is it. There is no other way. There's no second way. There's no roundaboutedness. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We will not escape our own sin. We will not escape death on our own. We have to go through a mediator who is already raised from the dead, who is the first fruits. For I delivered to you, I didn't read this at the end, for I delivered to you at first importance, but I also received. Christ died for our sins. Why does the resurrection matter? Because the Son of God died. In accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Died for our sins, was buried, raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That, that is actually the reason the resurrection matters. Our resurrection only matters if his resurrection did something. His resurrection didn't do anything, or if he was not raised from the dead, we'd spin our wheels on Sunday mornings. Smile at each other for no apparent reason. But because he was resurrected from the dead, because his death actually did something, and his resurrection actually did something, and because he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, awaiting the day that he will return, our lives actually matter. We're not our own. We were bought with a price. 
us. So, the resurrection, the goodness of the fact that we have a promise, hope to escape death, is the Think of it this way. So, there are all kinds of things that happen in high school. One of them being, especially years ago, if I get into much trouble with these sorts of things. Other high schools, your rival school. I actually don't know who it is in Jackson. Who's the rival in Jackson? Is that really where? South. Southridge. So in my hometown, it was the Tippecanoe Valley Vikings, right? And just about 10 miles from my house, and boy, do we hate those guys. Yes. Right? And there were pranks between the schools when I was there. One of them happened at my expense. I was asked to be the mascot of the basketball tournaments. You can imagine, I was a bit more hyped back in high school, so it's good to fit. I go. I wear the thing, you know, I'm on like, you know, gym shorts and a t-shirt because it's hot and that's back and forth. I think zebra, I'm with the zebras, so I have a big zebra head on. We get done with the game, we won the game, I'm in the bathroom, I'm changing, take the head off, I sit to the side, I'm getting out of the suit, sweating, you know, all of a sudden, head disappears from underneath the bathroom stall. By the time I hit the door open, I'm like, hey, it's gone. It's gone. Stole the zebra head from a mascot. It's not a good situation. I was in a little bit of trouble. Now I have to go back with a plastic bag, trash bag basically, with no heads. Now, what do you think crossed my mind at that moment? Well, many things crossed. All of them involved various vandalism slash even getting evenness with it in the back. Okay. I just immediately went from we just won the game, we are the victors, to third back guys. My mind was pulled from the actual thing that mattered. Now this is worldly speaking. The thing that matters is not whether or not they stole your mascot. The thing that matters is did you beat them in the game, right? But immediately I forgot whether we beat them or not, didn't matter. The whole point was just immediate retribution for the thing that happened. Now, trans that's what actually matters. No amount of sin against you changes that. No amount of sin back towards them fixes anything other than you just act. His victory matters and it keeps you. If you keep focused on the fact that he won, it doesn't matter what happens to me. It doesn't matter what is said against me. It doesn't matter who is mad at me. Christ is a victor. This is part of the argument in the middle, Paul says. Then why am I getting fed to the lions? Why am I dying every day if the resurrection doesn't matter? He's like, it does matter. So I have a resurrection. There's no need for me to get angry and sin against anybody else. It's a keeping. It's a reward. It's a surety. It's an 
established fact. The actual thing that matters has been ignored. It's just waiting for the final curtain to drop for death to be put to birth. Therefore, do not go on sinning. You get mad because your neighbor did X to you, and so you put a you know privacy fence six feet tall in between. But we do this kind of thing all the time. We think the immediate action is what actually matters. Live today, tomorrow we die. No, 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 no. Christ died, he rose again, he is the victor. Today is fleeting. Your sins don't add anything other than insult to Satan. Go on sin in ways that you used to walk in. Not because it earns you salvation, because it literally makes no sense to do it. It's an absolute absurdity to sin when you know that the victory is yours. This is the thing you have to teach your children, right? Currently teaching my children the good old age-old sayings. Prime rubber, your boyfriend, whatever you say, bounces off me, sticks to you. Sticks and stones may break my bones, words will never hurt me. You have to teach your kids to be resilient because the fact that their sibling is calling them an idiot, though it is bad if your sibling is calling them an idiot, actually doesn't make them an idiot. It doesn't actually change the actual facts on the ground. It doesn't make a difference other than the guy is saying something stupid. It's why we get so riled up about politics. We have to know that stuff is the stuff of the essence of reality. Because this politician says this, this guy says that, and they fight about it, and they're on stage, that that stuff actually matters. The resurrection, guys. The resurrection matters. Do not get swept away in the day to day, and so go on sinning. Your life was bought with the price. You have a victory yet to be realized. What is it to you if you get fired? You have victory. What is it to you if your mascot had been stolen? We won the game, guys. Do what you want to the mascot. We beat you. Do what you want to me. We won. Write what you want, say what you want, do what you want. Christ has been resurrected from the dead. No worries. No problems. No need to sin against you. This is the hundred year influence of bad doctrine in all the mainline churches that the Bible is. We have You do not have a resurrected Lord. You do not have Christ. Period. End of story. You're not a Christian. You have no hope. And all the things that I just said are not yours. And you will die. And you will go to hell. And you will have no hope for the rest of the It will be all bad news. Everything good that I just talked about will not be yours. 
And that is the only thing that matters. And the most pivotal thing that matters. The resurrection of the Son. Let's stand. I'm going to pray. And then we'll sing one final hymn as we close of the resurrection of the Son. Stand and pray. Father, we are grateful. Grateful for the fact that your Son, Jesus, really did come back from the dead. That he really was dead. And that he really did come alive. And Father, we pray that you give us hope in the midst of that. That we would believe that it matters. That we would live lives that look like it matters. That we would not swept away in the currents of the day. But we would be steadfast and sure on the resurrection of the Son. We pray that you forgive us our sins, make us aware of it, help us to overcome them by the good spirit that you have given us on the day that death is not over. We pray that in Christ's name.